That is good stuff. Kids, you guys can head toward Children's Church. And the rest of us, we're going to dig in here. The story is that there was a day that Jesus was invited to a dinner at the home of a religious leader, a Pharisee. But the only reason that Jesus was invited to dinner that day was so that they could try to trap him, to catch him doing something wrong. The story is that also there was a man who was suffering from a swelling of his body. Probably something similar to what we would, we would know today as, as edema, where, where joints swell, sometimes the whole body swells. It's, it's usually affected by a bad heart or kidney or liver. But the only reason that man was invited that day was for the purpose of catching Jesus in doing something wrong. It was a setup. It was a trap because it was the Sabbath. Now, God's law said the Sabbath was to be a day of rest, no work on the Sabbath. But the problem was that some of the religious leaders, like the Pharisees, they had added law after law after law on top of the law that God had given, almost to the point that it almost made Sabbaths impossible. It became almost work to try to make sure that you were resting. And so the reason they invited Jesus, the reason they invited the man is they think they're creating a dilemma here. It's the Sabbath, you're supposed to rest, but here's a man who is hurt and we know that Jesus loves people and he can heal. What's he gonna do? He heals him. He heals him. And then he turns to those who were trying to trap him and he asked this question. If your child fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would you rescue them? Even if an animal that you had, an ox, if it fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would you rescue them? In other words, here is a man who is drowning in bodily fluid and you say it's wrong to heal him, but if you had an animal that was drowning you would rescue them. In other words, Jesus was calling out their hypocrisy. The story is they decided not to answer him. Good call. Good call. But Jesus wasn't done. It then says that Jesus is watching these people come in and they are choosing their seats of honor at the table. Now, here's how it worked in that day. Long table, but think short table. They didn't sit in chairs. They're seated on the the ground or kind of these little couches type things at times. And at the head of the table, you would have the host. And then a couple of chairs, right, one on each side that would be the, the, the highest seats of honor. And then as the seats move down the table, less honor. That's the way the culture was. Here's what Jesus said. He said, when you go to a wedding feast, now that's something they can relate to. Everybody loved a wedding feast. 
It was sort of a break from all the work that they had to do all the time. He said, when you, when you go to a wedding feast, when you're invited, don't take the seats of highest honor. Because if you do that, but then somebody else shows up who is of more importance than you, the host may say to you, hey, move down. You're going to switch places with them, and you are going to be embarrassed in front of everyone. He said, instead, start with the seats of lowest honor. Then if the host comes to you and says, hey, move on up, then you will be honored in front of everyone. And then Jesus makes this statement. Luke chapter 14, verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. But Jesus isn't done. Next, he turns to the host of the party, and he says to him, hey, when you host a party like this, Don't always invite your best of friends, your your relatives, the rich people that you really want to know. He's like, you know, the reason you invite them is so that they then in turn will invite you to their party. He said, instead, What I want you to do is invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the blind. And you'll be blessed. And then this is what he says in verse 14. Although they cannot repay you, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, they can't pay you anything back. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I just think that is so cool. We, we began a journey together as a church studying the story of Luke on January 1. We have been trying to study a chapter of the gospel every week. And here we are, 14 weeks in, chapter 14. It also just happens to be Easter. And right slam in the middle of this chapter, what do we find? The resurrection of the righteous. Now, here's what's important for you to know. The people to whom Jesus is speaking, the the people who are trying to trap him, they absolutely believe in the resurrection of the righteous. They do. They believe there is life beyond this life for those who are righteous. The resurrection of the righteous is simply talking about the time when those who are righteous will come before God for their eternal reward. And they knew, they knew what the prophet Isaiah had said long ago. Isaiah talked about a mountain on which the Lord would prepare this feast. It would be the best of wine. It would be the the, the best of meat, right? Sounds like an Easter dinner that you're looking forward to today, right? But he said, it's going to be the best of the best, and he's going to swallow up death, and he's going to wipe the tears from their eyes. They knew that scripture, especially the Pharisees would know it. Now get this, 
The Pharisees, these religious leaders, they really rose to prominence in a time when the Greek culture was having a tremendous impact on the Jewish culture. As in Greek thinking is starting to infiltrate Jewish thinking. And these are the guys who want to pull the people back from the influence of a pagan culture. They are the fundamentalists. They want to make Israel great again. They want to return the country to the fundamental godly principles on which it was founded. The Pharisees and the Jewish people they definitely saw the Pharisees as righteous. They kept all their own laws. But what Jesus said to them on this day is you're not in, which means you are not righteous, which means you will not be at the resurrection of the righteous. You're not in. Now, there's something you can notice from Scripture. Jesus always seeks to shatter false religious hope, always. You will never see Jesus put his arm around a Pharisee and say, well, we both worship the same God. We're both going to be there. You're my brother. Never. You never see Jesus put his arm around a scribe and say, well, you, you are a, such a student of the Old Testament and, and, and we, we both worship the God of Israel. You're going to be there. You're my brother. You never see him do that. He always explodes in the presence of false religious security. Anybody who lives under some kind of misguided assumption that they are headed for heaven needs to know when that's not true. I encourage you to realize today you can't put your arms around people in false religion and just say, well, because you are religious, because you have faith, you're okay. Everybody's got faith. <laughs> Everybody's got faith in something. But the faith that makes the difference is the faith that is placed in Jesus, the Son of God, who died for sin and rose again. You can put your arms around them. Just put your arms around them, tell them you love them, and tell them who Jesus is. Why do people trust in religion? I'm telling you it's because they believe that is what is going to get them to the resurrection. They think this is what's going to get us into the kingdom of God. And so they'll take on all the responsibilities and the constraints and the moral requirements. They'll, they'll follow all those laws because they're making sacrifices now so that one day they won't have to make any more sacrifices. That's called heaven. That's how the Pharisees lived. That's how the Jews lived. But Jesus said, this is a delusion. You are not headed for heaven. And in the story, he's pointing out the issue. It is an issue of pride versus humility. Pride versus humility. That was the point of the instruction when Jesus told them where to sit at the table. Now, when you 
maybe heard that story for the first time, isn't there a part of you that goes, Jesus is going, hey, don't sit at the top, go sit at the bottom so that when they invite you, it'll move you to the top. It almost sounds like a new strategy for hypocrisy. But that's not what Jesus is doing. This is what's called a a parable. It's like, it's, it's a story. He's using something familiar to them, a wedding feast, in order to teach them something they're not familiar with, the kingdom of heaven, and what they're missing is humility. It's the same point that he's making to the host when he says, don't invite all the rich people. Invite the poor and the blind and the, and the, and the crippled. And invite them. See, they thought that, that everything was about honor in the eyes of people and the way that you build honor, the way you move up the table is to reciprocate. In other words, I invite you to my party. You sit here so that you will invite me to your party and I'll get to sit here. That's the way it worked. It was a, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Every gift in that society had strings attached. There there was even money consequences right? This, this applies to marketplace. This is a business game. If you scratch the, you, you get to the table, you rub elbows with the right people. It means more money in your pocket. It was this giant game that got played. And Jesus shines the light on what is happening. These people care more about looking right to other people than they do about looking right to God. They care more about how they appear before other people than how they appear before God. They're putting on an external show, and it's a pretty good show, but Jesus is saying on the inside, their hearts, their hearts are not clean. Their hearts are not changed. Their hearts are prideful. They're prideful. God didn't make a bunch of laws to make people more proud. Because they could keep, that's the game the Pharisees played. That's why they added more laws on top of God's law so that the more laws I make, the more laws I can try to keep, therefore the more righteous I will be. Salvation is for the humble. Salvation Jesus said, is for those who know they're broken. Salvation is for those who come to God with a plea of mercy and grace. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount's the one that goes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's the message? It's this message of I know, I know my heart, I I am bankrupt. I, I, I I am weeping over my condition before God. It's about meekness. Jesus said this is the way into the kingdom. The narrow door of the kingdom is not entered by people bloated with the edema of pride. People swollen with their achievements, swollen with their good works. No, we only enter the kingdom of God because Jesus in his mercy 
lifted us out of the pit. Honor and blessing in God's kingdom comes to those who know they don't have it, know they can't earn it, know they don't deserve it, but humbly come to God saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pride blinds us. You know that? You you ever heard the phrase, right? Pride comes before a what? Fall. Why do you fall? Because you don't see it coming. Pride blinds us. There are places in Scripture where Jesus had a title for the Pharisees. You know what he called them? Blind guides. He's like, you guys are trying to lead the people. You're like the blind who are, who are leading the blind. You know why they're blind? It's their pride. And isn't it true that when we, when we read this kind of talk from Jesus and he's like, don't pick the top seats, pick the bottom seats, right? Don't invite, right, those who can do something back for you. Invite those who can't. I mean, it's like, that is like alien thinking. Even Jesus' own disciples struggled with that. Remember the day where James and John thought it was a good idea to ask Jesus, hey, when we get into the kingdom, can we have Boom, see on the right. And remember that? It's what's familiar to them. It's what's familiar to us. And so what Jesus calls us to here is something counter-natural, which means it is supernatural. In the Bible, the psalmist says, God leads the humble in what is right. And teaches the humble his way. Matthew says, blessed are the pure at heart for they shall see God. Pride thinks that self is the supreme value. And views everything else and everybody else as a means to honor self. But humility, the Bible says, says suddenly you don't think of yourself more than you should. A humble person accurately sees God's place. He is the king. He is above all. Humility then helps me see my place before him. And it sees how God loves the people around me. Why did Jesus say only the humble people can enter the kingdom? A big piece of that is because only humble people can see the kingdom. Because the more humble you are, the more reality that you will truly see, the more of the greatness of God that you will see, therefore the more joy you will experience, and therefore the more joy you will want others to experience. So here, here is my summary statement Kind of of what, when we read this story in Luke, here I think is what Jesus wants us to get. Only those who see their need for God's mercy and in turn see others' needs above their own will see the resurrection of the righteous. Pretty clear. Only Those who see their need for God, that's the humble. God, I am broken. God, I don't deserve this. 
God, I have sinned against you. But God, I am coming to you calling out on your mercy. When we see our need for God's mercy, and then in turn, when when I do that, he begins to change what I see, that I, I see the needs of others around me. It's not about how can I move up in honor in the table so that so that people will think that I am something. No, I know who I am now in the God that I belong to. My life can be about loving others. It's a supernatural change. It's a change of your heart. It's a change from the inside out. You're like, how do I change? Remember what, remember what was said in verse 11? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalting. Who is the humbler? God. Who is the exalter? God. I would tell you he's the unnamed actor in verse 11. What do you do? You call out to him. You call out to him in humility. And my prayer for you today, my prayer for you today is that you would see the love of a God who would give his son to die for you But rise on the third day that if you will in humility call out to him, God, I need you. I need your forgiveness. He will forgive you. The reason? He can and he wants to. And what Jesus did at the cross, it satisfied everything that needed to be satisfied in order for you to be able to be close to God. In all of your brokenness, in all of my brokenness, the cross changed all that. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against my sin. And he offers to you the greatest deal that has ever been offered in all of history. The deal is, he says, you give me your sin and I'll take it, and I'll forgive it, and I won't ever hold it against you again. But in return, I will give you my righteousness. I'll give you my goodness, the goodness that I could not earn, the goodness that that certainly was not mine, a supernatural transaction where Jesus took all my sin and I receive his righteousness that now when God looks at me, he doesn't see all the junk of my past. He sees the righteousness of his son. That is the only kind of righteousness that will be present at the resurrection of the righteous. The only kind. The only kind. My prayer today is that you would call out to him in mercy. Because nobody gets there by merit. Nobody gets there by good deeds. It's by grace through faith in Jesus. But I got one more thing that I want you to see today. I want to make sure you don't miss it. We're going to go back to verse 14. I want to show you the other part of this verse. Because Jesus made it clear you're inviting 
people who can't pay you back. And his point is they cannot repay you, but you will be repaid. And I believe there is a principle here that you and I need to be reminded of. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, those of us who know there is a resurrection, but just like the song we sang earlier, some days the brokenness feels overwhelming. Some days the loss feels overwhelming. This is what you and I need to remember. Wins and losses may look very different at the resurrection of the righteous. I'm saying wins and losses in this world. There are certain days that you feel like it's a victory. There there are other days you feel like everything has been lost. I'm saying wins and losses may look very different when we get to the other side, the resurrection of the righteous. You ever felt like you did exactly what God wanted you to do? Like you obeyed exactly what God said do. You, you, you persevered, you went through some struggle. You, you even sacrificed in order to do what God said you were supposed to do. And the result was loss. I have. I have. It was nearly 100 years ago that the Philadelphia church in Stockholm, Sweden, sent two missionary couples to the Congo, David and Sevilla Flood, Along with Joel and Bertha Erickson, those two couples cut their way through the jungle literally and established a mission station in a village there. During the first year, they couldn't hardly get anybody to talk to them. The village was reluctant to even hear the gospel because they were afraid of offending their tribal gods. But that didn't stop the couples. They kept trying to love. I mean, like, like Sevilla, she would share the love of Jesus with a little five-year-old boy who would deliver fresh eggs to her back door every day. She became pregnant. She was bedridden during much of the pregnancy because of malaria. But she gave birth to a baby girl named Ina. It was April 3rd, 1923. And 17 days later, Sevilla died. David made a casket. And he buried his 27-year-old wife on the mountainside overlooking that village. And grief and then bitterness flooded his heart. To the point that he actually gave his daughter, Ina, to the Ericsons. And he returned to Sweden with buried dreams and a broken heart. And he spent the next five decades trying to drown his sorrow with alcohol. He forewarned those who knew him 
do not mention the name of God ever in my presence. The Ericsons raised Ina until she was a toddler. Until both of them died within three days of each other because the villagers poisoned them to death. So Ina was then given to an American missionary couple, Arthur and Anna Berg. They, they renamed their adopted little daughter. They, they called her Aggie. And eventually the family returned to the United States. They, they pastored a church in South Dakota. After high school, Aggie enrolled in North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. She met and married a, another student there. His name was Dewey Hurst. They started a family. They, they served in a number of churches until he actually became the president of Northwest Bible College. And on their 25th wedding anniversary, the college gave them a special gift, a trip to Sweden. And Aggie's sole purpose became finding her biological father who had abandoned her 50 years before. They spent five whole days in Stockholm looking. And it was only on the last day before their departure, they got a tip that led to a third floor of a ramshackle apartment building. And there they found Aggie's dad on his deathbed. A failing liver. The last words David Flood ever expected to hear were, Dad, it's Ina. And the first words out of his mouth were filled with remorse. I never meant to give you away. And when they embraced, a 50-year curse of bitterness was broken. A father and a daughter were reconciled on that day, and a father was reconciled to his heavenly father for eternity. And when Aggie landed in Seattle the next day, she received the news that during the flight, her father had passed. It was five years later that Dewey and Aggie attended a conference in London. There were thousands of people who had gathered from around the world. And one of the speakers on the opening night was named Ruhigita Dagora who was the superintendent of the Pentecostal church in Zaire. But what caught Aggie's attention was the fact that Ruhigita was from the region that her parents had been missionaries a half a century before. And so after the message was over, she went to speak to him through an interpreter. She asked if, if he knew of the village where she was born. And Ruhigita said, I grew up in that village. She said, she said, did you ever hear of missionaries by the name of Flood? And he replied, every day I would go to Sevilla Flood's back door with a basket of eggs. And she, every day, would tell me about Jesus. He said, I don't know if she had a single convert in all of Africa besides me. And then he added, he said, 
After I accepted Christ, Sevilla died and her husband left and she had a baby girl named Ina and I've always wondered what happened to her. And as soon as Aggie said, I'm Ina, Ruhikita started to sob. They embraced like siblings separated since birth and he said to her, just a few months ago, I placed flowers on your mom's grave. And on behalf of the hundreds of churches and the hundreds of thousands of believers in Zaire, I thank you for letting your mom die that so many of us could live. You ever felt like You were doing exactly what God was telling you to do. But it felt like it was for nothing. You ever had what you thought was a a dream that God had for you? And suddenly, it's buried. You ever had that heart? That passion to do what God was telling you to do, but now that heart, it is broken. I have come to declare to you today, that is how it felt on Saturday. Between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. But the greatest news that I have for you today is that it is not over until God declares that it is over. It looked like all was lost, but when Jesus broke the seal on a tomb on Sunday morning, it signaled the greatest victory in the history of the world. In God's kingdom, failure is never final because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means there is a resurrection of the righteous. No, you will not win every battle. Hear me? You will not win every battle. There will be losses. But we have been given the end of the story and the war has already been decisively won. And on the other side, I promise you, we will have eyes to see that wins and losses will be understood very differently on the other side. Until then, what do I do? Here's what I do. Together, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Until then, I am fixing my eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that your heart will not grow weary and lose heart. Until then, do not fear, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. People of God, we celebrate together. We're with the guy who died, but he ain't dead no more. 
And you should never underestimate the ripple effect of one act of obedience in his great name. So God, would you help us believe? And God, would you help us to see? God, there are some who are listening to this today and we need eyes to see that you really are the Savior. We need eyes to see how remarkable is your love. We need eyes to see how we need you. We need eyes to see that if we call on you, there is forgiveness and there is life new. So God, I pray for those who today need to begin a relationship with you. God, where the, where the self attempts at goodness, God, it's not about how many rules we can keep because we've already messed up. God, it's not about whether we're better than the person next to us. God, this is about our heart compared to yours, and we are broken. And so today, God, would you give eyes to see, God, your love and your grace that we may call on you, asking for your mercy. But God, I also ask for eyes, eyes that can see for your kids. God, there's a, a bunch of people who gathered today that I love very much. Got a bunch of people who are willing to walk this out. God, they're, they're willing to, to lay down lives. They're willing to put others first. God, they're willing to, to risk in, in what you call them to do. Got a whole bunch of people. God, that together, we just need to be reminded that wins and losses may look very different on the other side. What feels like today, total loss. But it may look very different on the other side. I pray, God, that you would enable us together to fix our eyes on you and to believe what you say. We don't have to fear. You have given us the kingdom. It's in the name of Jesus that I'm asking you to help us today. Amen. And amen. You know, there are times we all experience in life where we find ourselves having funerals for dreams that we believed in. There are times for all of us when a loss of a relationship just absolutely knocks the breath out of us. There are times when we suddenly feel like we are staring into what we would declare a hopeless situation. But God has demonstrated authority over it all. And ultimately, he did so with an empty tomb. He specializes in turning things around. Hear me. Maybe now. Maybe later. But he always turns things around. Because only he can make a way in the wilderness. Only he can turn mourning into dancing. 
Only he brings beauty from ashes. Only he brings glory from shame. I invite you to join together with us now in celebrating the truth that only he can take a grave and turn it into a garden. I love you.